I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world battle by battle. And thanks for listening to Cauldron. I'm your host, Cullen, and today we have a great story for you. But first, a little bit of housekeeping. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Patreon. Just search Cauldron and you'll get some cool images, some maps, and some interactive stuff or prizes and games, stuff like that. Speaking of maps, next month we have a sponsored battle coming to you, so keep your ears peeled for that. We'll be working with a company called BattleArchives.com, and these guys do some really amazing map work. So stick around next month, and you'll be able to get some good discounts with BattleArchives.com, and we'll probably also be raffling off a couple of prizes. All right, lastly, you know the deal. Rate, review, tell a friend. Big shout-out to the most recent reviewers on iTunes. That's Wildo4501, T-Boyle45, and Luke Schmidt, whose awesome review had the heading of, quote, If you like Dan Carlin, you'll like Cullen Burke, end quote. Which, by the way, is pretty darn cool. That's a damn fine thing to say and a quick way to my heart. So thank you, Luke, for that. And in general, guys, thank you very much. It really helps the show if you give us a review. If you do, by the end of this month, contact me and you'll be in the, uh, in the mix to pick a battle in the upcoming month or two. All right, let's move forward here and let's t- take a look back to 1937, some 82 years ago, to the dry, hot summer of northern China. In the chaos of nighttime training, one man has to go to the bathroom. By morning, the world has changed, the course for war is set, and everything from Hiroshima to Pearl Harbor to the rape of Nanking can be traced to one seemingly small incident at the Marco Polo Bridge. Never let a good crisis go to waste. Now, that's a pretty famous, cynical quote. It's been attributed to a whole bunch of different people, from Rahm Emanuel to Churchill. And the reason I think it's a good standby to dust off whenever things are kind of going haywire is that uh, it's, it's a good quote. It's smart. It's right. Uh, The reason everyone loved or at least grudgingly admired or feared Littlefinger from Game of Thrones was that the man loved a good crisis. His whole thing was that, quote, chaos is a ladder, and chaos comes from crisis. 
The entire goal or point of government is to bring order from chaos, which is why most governments and politicians hate crisis. It has the potential to drag everything backwards into this kind of bubbling disorder. And what Littlefinger and some very effective leaders in the real world have realized from time to time is that chaos comes, for those willing to risk the potential dangers, chaos comes with opportunity. From the chaos of the late 1920s, Germany, uh, you, you had the little Austrian From the turmoil of the French Revolution came the little Corsican. From the chaos of the February Revolution came the little Georgian. Now, these men each had incredible talents, willpower, and abilities, but they really had to try and exert immense pressure to pull from the existing chaos some form of the world that they wanted to rule. What you end up with is you have a Nazi Germany. Uh, a French empire, a Soviet Russia. In the case of our story today, we have an entire army that creates and manages crisis as policy. They are not trying to grab hold of the wheel of a careening out-of-control car. These guys are the ones that cut the brakes, cut the steering, and then pulled the pin on a grenade and threw it in the back seat. From each little bit of chaos manufactured by this group, they somehow pulled success after success until the government, the people, and the emperor of Japan himself could not see the danger ahead of them. But in time, Japan would find itself by 1945 in ruins, a smoldering heap of rubble where once stood a dynamic first-rate world power on the rise. The policy of crisis had created more chaos than any one nation could control. All right, before we dive in on this episode, I want to just uh, quickly plant a little seed. Think about this as we go through this episode. It's going to seem a little odd at first, but I promise by the end of this episode, it will make sense. I want you to really try and think of the most inconvenient bathroom break you have ever had. I'm talking timing, like uh, bad timing, a, a wedding, a funeral, a graduation, whatever it might be. Or think of the worst consequences of said call of nature. Maybe you missed a moment that you'll never have back in your life, a job opportunity, a kiss, anything, or, or God forbid, a couple of minutes of your favorite show. Whatever it might be, think about the consequences of your worst bathroom break. Now, just have that kind of marinating in the back of your brain space as we move forward, and uh, I think you'll, you'll find it interesting to compare by the end of this episode. The roots of the Marco Polo Bridge incident can really be traced all the way back to the the late 19th century. Japan was, quote, opened to the West and then made this, this incredible, fantastic leap into modernization. So when I say open, it wasn't like it was, there was a fence all the way around Japan. Japan was kind of in a self-imposed state of isolation for a few hundred years. 
and then the the colonial powers, the Western powers, kind of put an end to that isolation and wanted to open up new markets in the Asian area in in the East. So Japan comes out of this self-imposed isolation, and they're flying into the new age of, of industry and science and innovation. And it's amazing. Japan proves incredibly adept at using Western methods blended with Japanese ideology to kind of rapidly update the nation as a whole. And this period is called the Meiji Restoration. China, on the other hand, that other big giant uh, Asian country, powerful country, was crumbling at this point in history. Centuries of stagnation led to a really weak system of government and one decidedly not meant for the upcoming 20th century. Using their bloodhound-like abilities to sniff out decay and rot, the colonial powers of Europe swooped in and feasted on China. Picking off plum pieces where they could, it was, however, believed that keeping a somewhat intact China was good for business and stability in general in the East. The Europeans, for the most part, were content with taking small but tasty little morsels instead of gorging themselves as they had elsewhere around the globe. Japan, seeing the opposite trajectory the two nations were on, pounced on China. The goal was to become a hunter, so Japan needed some pelts, and China had more than enough. In the first Sino-Japanese War, 1894-95, China was trounced. The Japanese so badly whipped the Chinese that the Western powers collectively sat up and gave the equivalent of a raising of their brandy tumbler and a gentle head nod to the Japanese. By the time the war was wrapped up, Japan had what had basically achieved what it needed to be in the big leagues in terms of, of colonial powers. Japan had now achieved a colonial state. It had colonies. Specifically, they had taken Korea as a nominal puppet state. They had also taken the island of Taiwan, even though the Taiwanese fought uh, pretty strongly against that. And the Japanese had gotten the Laodong Peninsula in the process. Now, real quick, just about this, I am probably going to butcher some of these words. Whether they're Chinese or Japanese, I am going to probably say them wrong. I apologize to anybody who that I might offend. And if I do get them wrong, be sure to let me know. All right, so back to the story. The Japanese also received, at the end of the First Sino-Japanese War, 17,000 pounds of silver as payment in the peace from the Chinese Qing Empire. Some of the Western powers, however, not wanting to be left out of a cool party, stepped in to get their share of the prizes after Japan did all the work. But Japan had tasted victory and the spoils of said victory, and Japan liked it. This giant disaster of a war for China was followed by the Boxer Rebellion, which brought about a number of treaties and agreements that directly led to the horrors of the late 1930s. Scrambling to change, China replaced the monarchy with its thousands of years of history for a republic-style government. The hope was that force-feeding the people a new form of government would foster rapid development. 
What it actually did was create another crisis as factions broke out and a massive civil war engulfed the entire country. Warlords, multiple governments, and lone generals vied for China for years. Now, as China is in the throes of a massive civil war, the Japanese are slowly growing stronger and stronger. And there are these little milestone moments where you see Japan really popping on the global stage. Fresh off of the First Sino War, Japan does the unthinkable and takes on the august Russian Imperial Navy and its army. And Japan wins. At sea, in a spectacular Asian Trafalgar, this battle's called Tsushima, and we will definitely cover it at some point, the Japanese land a crushing blow to the Tsar's fleet. The land situation is a little bit more of a slog, but by the end, an eastern nation had defeated a western one, and the world was shocked. I like to think that many a monocle fell out of heads around Europe when the headlines that were being read that morning showed that Japan was the, uh, the victor against the entire Russian army and navy. So proving itself a real gamesman type of player, Japan walks away from the Russo-Japanese War as a victor, and then it gets in on the right side of the First World War and becomes part of the Allied, uh, the Allied forces there and is able to pick off a couple of small uh, German-held properties and islands around uh, uh, Southeast Asia. And these are really helpful for Japan in terms of its, its long-term plans because Japan needs supplies and it needs more and more land. Um, and so they're able to get off of, uh, actually, they get out of World War I with, with quite a few additional little properties and with very little loss to show for it. So they're kind of, uh, along with the United States, Japan is probably the, the big winners of World War I. And again, every step Japan makes at this point was towards the eventual crisis that it wanted. And it seems always to be benefiting from these little wars, these little crises that pop up. And so you can see why a country that believes that it can manufacture them, manage them, and then gain from them would never really start to uh, try and veer away from crisis. By the 1920s, China was starting to get back on its feet. The country was stabilizing, and the rise of a military strongman named Chiang Kai-shek seemed to be steadying things and putting it back on track. Chiang was trained by the Japanese in war, and he was utterly ruthless in reunifying his country. He destroyed numerous warlords and outlaw armies, and he tried to crush pretty much everyone that challenged his authority. He's an interesting character, and at some point we'll probably have to cover him in a, in a little bit more thoroughness um, because he really does play a huge role in 20th century world history and politics and China in particular. But uh, in, for the purposes of this story, he just is kind of a peripheral figure. So the thorn in Chang's proverbial side is 
is in it, it proves to be an ideological one. It's the CCP, that's the Chinese Communist Party. And these guys are always on the move, they're always on the make, they're trying to become the dominant force in China. And so it comes down by the late 20s, it really comes down to Chang and his Nationalist Party and the CCP. And in the late 20s, they, the, the Communist Party launches an armed rebellion against Chang. And this challenge to Chang's authority is so grating and it just cannot go unanswered. And Chang goes on to just do whatever he can to decimate the, the Communist Chinese Party. Uh, what he ends up doing is he, for a time, he focuses on the CCP as his number one threat, even above the encroaching Japanese and the duplicitous Western powers. And with this decision to choose the communist as his number one enemy, uh, Chang really shows that he has some severe blinders on, because in this case, he's, he's terribly wrong. Without any real knowledge of the situation, all it takes is a map to figure out that Japan is in a desperate situation. It's got a huge population, a huge military, it's trying to be a modern power, and it's an island, which means it has, it has, it's got very limited resources, and a lot of what it needs has to be brought in from other countries, which usually means it has to be paid for, or it can be taken. So the, the Meiji uh, restoration and the speedy modernization meant that the country needed more stuff, lots of stuff. Simply to stay at standard production levels, vast quantities of raw goods and products were, were required on a daily basis, almost none of which could be pulled from the home islands of Japan themselves. Uh, you're talking oil, rubber, minerals, wheat, all sorts of stuff that had to be either brought or taken. And now Japan chose to take. Right across the water in northern China was Manchuria, an enormous breadbasket-type jackpot of food and raw goods. Think of the uh, think of the Ukraine and Siberia. That's what we're talking about. Just this wonderful combination of foodstuffs and and raw materials. In some serious real politic maneuvering, in 1931, Japan swoops in and took control of the entire area, claiming a desire for more national safety on their part. Now, as a wannabe first world, uh, world power and westernized type nation, the Japanese did all the right things here. They claimed this was for the people of Manchuria, that the annexation was more of a liberation. They even went so far as to bring the last Chinese emperor, a man who was Manchu, which is a uh, descendant of the Manchuria area, and they, they bring him back and put him in charge of this new puppet state that they are calling Manchu Kuo. But don't, uh, don't be deceived. This is not a liberation. This is not an attempt to give Manchuria back to the Manchu. Nothing like that, because Manchu Kuo is not free. It's a true puppet nation. Everything that happens there is either planned, ordered, or okayed by Tokyo, and almost all of its goods and foodstuffs and whatever that they can produce is going back to Japan. The uh, most dangerous and, as we will see, the most little finger esque 
of these representatives and, and the people that Tokyo puts into Manchu Kuo is the KA, otherwise known as the Kwantung Army. By seizing Manchuria in 1931, Japan had solved some very severe supply issues. At the same time, it had irrevocably placed itself on the course that would lead to national self-immolation. While not outright recognizing Manchu Kuo, China, under Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang government, made peace with Japan. But Japan now looked around and realized it had a considerable country to defend with a massive border shared by multiple nations. To ensure Manchu Kuo's safety, Tokyo left an army in place. The KA, or Kwantung Army, was to move freely over the next decade exercising what amounted to its own foreign policy. Led by the most extreme hawks in the Japanese government, including the infamous future wartime Prime Minister Tojo, the KA planned on forcing Japan into a power position over China. Independent of Tokyo, the KA officers believed, truly believed, that they were the only means to solve the, quote, China problem. That problem was the reunification of China back into one solid mass that would in time be able to swat the Japanese pieces right off the game board. To stop that from happening, the KA was devoted to pulling China apart, chunk by chunk. In a series of sometimes unauthorized, sometimes authorized movements, the KA moved into various parts of northern China, establishing puppet states all the way. These were then sold to the rest of the world as liberations and policing-type actions. And the Japanese were not alone in taking advantage of a teetering China. It was in the 1930s that the ultimate jackal, Joseph Stalin, grabbed Mongolia for the Soviet Union. So China's kind of getting hit by multiple different groups here, all taking advantage of their weakness. And as China was picked and pecked at, Chiang Kai-shek saw his country and his control of it shuddering under the stress. By 1937, things had gone so far that the ancient city of Beijing was almost entirely surrounded by Japanese-controlled lands. The north, east, and west of the city were held by Japanese forces, leaving only a small southwest window into the rest of China. As part of previous deals made with the Chinese, Decades prior, foreign powers were allowed to keep troops in the rail line area between the key cities of Beijing and Tianjin. They were also allowed to conduct military maneuvers in the area without informing Chinese authorities. These crappy deals played a massive role in the events that follow, but there is really so much stuff to cover here that we'd never really get to the battle if I got bogged down. So if you find any of this stuff interesting or want to know more, I cannot recommend Dan Carlin's Supernova in the East series enough. It's hardcore history at its finest, 
Uh, he usually, you know, he crushes it. He covers everything, and he goes in way more depth because he can. He's got five or six hours. So definitely check that out if you want to learn more. The KA and the recently reinforced CGA, which is Japan's China Garrison Army, were operating way outside the lines in northern China. The whole hawkish leadership of the KA was very into the idea of ask for forgiveness, not permission. And if you keep winning, then you don't really have to ask for forgiveness at all, which is kind of cool. In 1935, a small, formerly British Army barracks was captured by the Japanese. Used mainly as an outpost, little was thought of the seizure of this barracks at the time. The barracks was in Fengtei, a mere five kilometers from the soon-to-be hotly contested Marco Polo Bridge. Now, the Marco Polo Bridge is a true marvel of construction. It, it's a really cool bridge. Please go online, either on our webpage or uh, Instagram, or go on just Google search and look this bridge up. It's beautiful. It's got such great artistry to it, and it's, it's really a, um, a magnificent, magnificent piece of construction. It's located outside the walled town of Wanping County, and it's just southwest of Beijing. The bridge has a total of 11 granite arches spanning the Yangding River, which I believe is a tributary of the Hai. And it's first mentioned in the West by the famous uh, Italian traveler Marco Polo, whose, na whose name was given to it by Westerners, but the bridge is also known in Chinese as uh, Luco Chao or Lugao. So close to the Marco Polo Bridge was a, another bridge, and this is a rail line bridge, and it's extremely uh, valuable. At this point in world history, you're basically sending the vast majority of your supplies, your men, your equipment, your materiel on rail lines. So any bridges that are good for trains are very, very valuable. Wanping County and its, uh, its neighboring bridges were the lifeline of Beijing to the rest of China. And both the Japanese and the Chinese recognized the importance of the vital bridge crossing. Japan had, had even made demands for Chinese withdrawal from the area and had even gone so far as at one point offered to buy Wanping County outright. Because of its importance, though, China flatly refused to move, even when they were threatened. And this is because Chang's access to Beijing was priceless. By June of 1937, the Kwantung army had grown restless and was scrambling to finish the encirclement of Beijing. This would give them ultimate control over northern China and put the Kuomintang and Chiang Kai-shek on their heels. In an attempt to force the issue, Japan began running intense training maneuvers throughout the area. The other foreign powers in the region had the same legal right to maneuvers on Chinese territory, but they rarely exercised it. And that's okay, because Japan would train enough for everyone. Almost daily, and then nightly, Japan was running advanced live ammunition training operations throughout the area. 
and these were in and around populated Chinese communities, and the villagers were rightly terrified. This was part, I believe, of the Japanese goal, to try and provoke the Chinese out of anger, fear, or pride. In an attempt to keep the people calm, the Chinese had asked the Japanese that they be warned, especially about the nighttime maneuvers. At first, the Japanese had agreed and had been relatively good about giving the locals a heads up when they were training at night. But as the desired fight was slow in coming, Japan became more and more sporadic with its warnings, eventually stopping warnings completely. Fatally, on the night of July 7, 1937, training was ordered in the Marco Polo Bridge area, and whether by design or accident, no notice was given. Having the army of a known bully state running through your backyard in the dead of night, firing off live ammo, training or not, has got to be scary. And confusing. Almost like intentional chaos. Understandably, and probably by design, some of the Chinese locals were scared into action. Believing they were under attack, some of the armed civilians fired off scattered shots in the direction of the Japanese. Now, this is again an interesting thing because I doubt that the trained, hardened soldiers of Japan's army saw much threat in these pot shots. But a random, disorganized gunfight occurred anyways around 2300, and without any real casualties or real effects, the two sides just kind of melted away. It's at this point in the night, though, that Private Shimura Kikujiro and his bladder change history. The young soldier needed to relieve himself on the march back to base, and slipping off into the brush on the side of the road, he found a nice quiet tree and relieved himself. By the time he had wrapped up, though, Kikujiro had discovered his unit had moved on without him, and he was totally lost. Stumbling around in the night, he finally found the base, but his bathroom break was unauthorized and he would be punished. He attempted to sneak back into his unit, but to no avail. His failure to get in before roll call set the next events in motion. When the training exercise was complete in the Japanese unit of Major Kiyowano Ichiki, stood at attention for roll call, a man was missing. Believing in the heat of the firefight that had happened, the missing private had been taken by the Japanese, Ichiki reported the incident to his CO, Colonel Renai Mataguchi. Now, this was what the K.A. had wanted all along, a situation where they could act out of self-defense. A message was sent to the Chinese commander of Wanping County, demanding he allow the Japanese to search the village for their missing man. The Chinese flatly refused, deeming that the Japanese had already broken the law by training at night unannounced. A search of sovereign territory would be too far. The Chinese did see the sense, though, of calming the situation and offered to search the area themselves. 
Furiously, but probably gleefully on the inside, the Japanese rejected the offer. Again, they demanded free access to Wanping County and the right to search Chinese homes and lands. This time, though, the offer came with an ultimatum of further force if refused. All of this was bluff and posturing, though, because Private Kikujiro had returned and been accounted for long before. The Japanese knew he was not in a basement in Wanpeng being tortured. He was back with his unit, healthy and unharmed. Things, though, had progressed too far to go back. The Japanese had their desired moment and their crises, and China could not possibly acquiesce to the demands without becoming totally subservient. Rock, hard place, frying pan, fire, they all apply here. Chinese leaders in the area put the word out for all the units to go on high alert and be ready for anything. Around 3.30 in the morning on the 8th, more troops and bigger guns reinforced the Japanese units out of Fengtai. The situation was becoming desperate, so the Chinese split the baby, offering to allow Japanese officers to join in the Chinese search of the town. Now keep in mind, the man they are looking for is no longer lost, and the Japanese know it. Shortly before 5 a.m., the Second World War begins. At five, even with their own men in the town, Japanese soldiers supposedly start unloading machine gun fire into the Wanping early morning air. Now, other sources I read have said that the mess uh, uh, really was started because a group of Chinese infantry suddenly tried rushing the Marco Polo Bridge, or because a couple of Chinese Uh, farmers accidentally started firing, or because there were Chinese communists who intentionally were trying to set off hostilities and began firing without orders. With the guilt of starting such a costly war on both sides, it's not surprising to see each blame the other for firing first. But it doesn't really matter. What ended up happening is somebody fired and the Japanese started moving on to the Marco Polo Bridge with some support from armored units, and they also started to try and take the vital rail bridge, even though they were under furious Chinese fire. The man in charge of defending the bridges was Colonel Xi Jingwen. He had around 100 men at first, but was getting tons of resupplied uh, or reinforcements from the surrounding area. And he was ordered to hold his positions at all costs. Again, these rail lines and these bridges are super, super important. And Chiang Chiang Kai-shek knows that if he loses them, he loses Beijing. So uh, Jing Wen is ordered to hold at all costs. Using far better equipment, though, the Japanese mowed the Chinese defenders down in droves. By the afternoon of the 8th, the bridge and the surrounding areas were mostly controlled by the Japanese forces, and the day seemed to be won by Japan. 
Soon, though, the Chinese defenders outnumbered the attackers. Again, Jing Wen is getting tons of uh, reinforcements from the surrounding areas. These, these units are being rushed up towards him because the situation is so dire and so important. The following day saw a total swing in the action. Using the mist and rain in the early morning of July 9th, the Chinese forces counterattacked and walloped the unsuspecting Japanese. The Chinese regained control of the bridge and soon were dug in, presenting a vigorously defended position to the Japanese. As the attackers, the Japanese would have had to move through uh, very little cover on their way to, uh, to reach the, the bridge. They would have gone through light scrub and crops and low brush towards the defenders. The Chinese, on the other hand, were behind stable structures, and Wanping had a uh, seven-meter wall, all of which would have uh, done really well stopping small arms fire. Recognizing that a deadly situation and an escalation of the entire conflict would soon follow, the Japanese Foreign Service reached out to the Chinese, uh, the Chinese higher-ups to try and talk about coming up with a, a deal that they could all agree on, a truce, a, a ceasefire. What the truce called for was uh, really, really degrading and astonishing that anybody would, uh, would go along with it. It called for an apology to be given by the Chinese to the Japanese. Punishment would be dealt to those that were, were responsible for the, the hostilities. Control of Wanping would be turned over to the Hopai Chinese civilian constabulary and not to the Chinese uh, regiment that was nearby. And the Chinese would attempt to better control communists in the area. It's a, it's a humiliating, humiliating truce. And uh, the Chinese nationalist Kuomintang believed, though, that it might be the only way out of war and therefore chose to accept it. Of course, though, the existence of a truce meant nothing to some of the Japanese generals, and one even refused to acknowledge it at all, continuing to shell the village for hours after it was agreed upon. Finally, he was forced to withdraw his men northeast of Wanping. The Marco Polo Bridge incident was over. Things had gone, for the most part, back to where they were pre-private Kikujiro's bathroom break. Uneasy though things were, the Chinese thought with a truce in place, war seemed to be avoided and history averted. The Japanese, though, were just getting warmed up. For a modern battle that led to the most significant conflict in human history, we know incredibly little about the human cost of the Marco Polo Bridge incident. Casualties for the Chinese seem to be all but a small group of the original defenders dead. Since we don't have any exact number of reinforcements, though, it's hard to say what that means. There was probably a good amount of dead and wounded on the Chinese part, but uh, again, it's, it's really hard to come up with an exact number. For the Japanese, we have really no idea. 
They started the operation with somewhere shy of 6,000 men in the area, and it's probable that uh, their superior technology, medicine, and, and gear meant that they had relatively low casualty numbers, but, you know, that's speculation at best. What is beyond debate is that the events that followed dashed any chance of peace. The blame for the continuation of hostilities goes to both the Japanese and the Chinese. You remember the CCP we talked about earlier? This is where Chang's suspicion of them comes up big. They ran all sorts of little guerrilla attacks that prodded and angered the Japanese to the point that peace was just totally out of the question. July 11th saw a large infantry and air support reinforcement that was being dispatched by Tokyo finally reach the Japanese forces in northern China. By July 20th, Japan had almost 200,000 men on the ground around Beijing. On the 13th, Japanese forces moved to eject Chinese units from northern Beijing itself. Further violence happened on the 17th, the 25th, 26th, and 28th. Low-grade combat, though, was happening throughout the area for the entire month, and there were countless little sideshow battles that took place everywhere. By late July, Beijing's defenders had been outfought and outmaneuvered, and on the 29th, the, the city was surrendered without firing a shot. A failed Chinese surprise attack on Japanese forces around the city of Tianjin led to utter disaster, and by late July 30th, superior Japanese firepower had pushed the Chinese army out of the area, and the last great city in northern China was now in Japanese hands. Not long after, Wanping County and the Marco Polo Bridge fell into Japanese hands as well. The incident was finally over. Today there is the People's Anti-Japanese War Museum located at the Marco Polo Bridge. The bridge itself is pockmarked with shell holes that are now worn as badges of pride and they're marked with monuments. Along sections of the bridge, there are actually plaques and heavy stone drums. And each one of these drums has a uh, line upon line of text written on them. The text all recounts the history of what would be the most costly series of wars in human history. For China, the Second Sino-Japanese War, of which the Marco Polo Bridge incident marked the very beginning, was devastating. Two million dead, probably more, followed by even more violent revolution and famine and decades of turmoil. The actual number of dead is perhaps much higher than two million. For Japan, the ensuing conflict led to their utter destruction. Drawn deeper and deeper into the heart of darkness that was China, Japan exhausted itself in a windless war. By the time LeMay started lighting the home islands on fire, Japan had no chance. Long before the world's first dance with atomic weapons, Japan had already lost the war. Blame for the war can sometimes be clear, and sometimes it's straightforward, sometimes hard, and sometimes murky. 
Who fired the first shot is always the question. In some circles, though, the the claim is that the Japanese orchestrated this specific situation with war as the goal. The track record definitely existed. The Mukden incident and various other, quote, incidents had been manufactured throughout the 1930s. Most historians today, though, don't believe that this particular incident was actually planned out. First, the Japanese were famously afraid of the Soviet Union interfering or outright attacking their northern border. Incredibly, the largest Japanese uh, army of the Second World War was a million-man army that sat uselessly on the Manchukuo Soviet border throughout the war. This is crazy because these troops obviously could have been vital in any number of battles with the Allies throughout the entire war. But again, the fear of Stalin's hordes was so great that Tokyo would not risk weakening the border one bit. Second, the circumstances of having one man disappear to pee and get lost are way too specific. They wouldn't need the lie to have any basis in reality. The Japanese could have just claimed that the town had captured one of their men, and they wouldn't have needed to create this whole little series of circumstances. And we know that Private Kikujiro and his story are in large part uh, true because in 2013, the National Diet Library of Japan released the documents pertaining to his, his little story. And the files recount the entire sadly silly saga of this man's historic pee, and all of which seems insane to just make up or try and, and, and create out of whole cloth just so that you can attack a foreign country when you've shown no compulsion in just attacking that country in the past. There has also been blame put on the CCP, again, the Communist, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, and they've come under scrutiny for maybe creating the whole incident as well. But this was certainly possible, uh, but again, it seems unlikely to me. Too many moving parts and, and too much potential uh, downside, and I'm not sure exactly how they would have uh, created the, the private Kikujiro uh, situation. So if anything is to be blamed, it was, in my opinion, the Japanese and their desire for more power over China. The need for more stuff, the need for more power, the need for more recognition, the great catalyst that is crisis, the opportunity of chaos. All right, that's the Marco Polo Bridge incident, and man, I am pumped not to have to spit that out again for a while. Also, I think it's very funny how every dire situation in the 1930s in China was called an incident. It seems very, uh, very formal. As usual, questions, comments, concerns, issues, hit me up on the website, cauldronpodcast.com, or DM me on Instagram or Facebook, Any errors or inaccuracies, let me know, and I will address them in the next episode. For this episode, we use the book by Osprey called Combat, China, 1937 to 1938, Chinese Soldier versus Japanese Soldier by Benjamin Lai. 
always. I love the Osprey books, so I'd always recommend them. They are super packed with information and, and, and really have great images and maps and all sorts of wonderful little details. The artwork was, again, by Mel Hacks. With, uh, she's, she's really great. She's awesome, and the prices are very reasonable. So check her out on Fiverr.com. Just search Mel Hacks. All right, next up, we are headed to the age of the young lion. Sweden's hour of power, Peter the Great's mightiest moment, and the Battle of Poltava. <laughs> <laughs> 